Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by Awaza. Awaza is well known for their line of outdoor pond and water garden products and are now stepping into the indoor aquatics market. Their lineup includes products like the BioPlus filters and external Biomaster canister filters. Both lines of filtration offer models with heater integration to help you declutter your tank and show off your plants and fish. Awaza also has a great selection of aquariums in their Biorb line. Their Biorb Cube Aquarium actually won the award for Best Aquarium Product at the SuperZoo Trade Show. So check out these great products and more by clicking on the links in the show notes. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Thursday, June 13th, 2019. My guest today is Frank Amir. Frank is the brand representative and area manager for Sarah USA. So Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Randy. Uh, thank you for inviting me for the, the podcast. Yeah, no, it's going to be an awesome one for sure. And it's going to be a podcast that I'm a little bit ashamed to say I didn't realize how awesome or how involved um, in your experiences in the hobby have been. So just kind of in the pre-intro section, um, you and I discussing a little bit more about your backstory. And oh, man, there's a lot there. So I'm, I'm very, very excited. Thank you. And as a disclaimer, so um, I am director of operations for Aquarium Co-op. So you do serve as um, kind of our our representative um, for Sarah for us on that business side. But you and I, we had connected at Aquatic Experience 2018 prior to me joining Aquarium Co-op. And I had reached out to you then and many other brands as well. And you were one of the few that um, actually was relatively interested in um, being interviewed on a podcast to talk about Sarah. So, so thank you for that. And I just felt like throwing that little disclaimer out there for people. So they know that, you know, we do have a business relationship, but at the same time, uh, we did make a connection prior to that. And uh, we'll have as much of an unbiased conversation or, or whatever as we can. So Sure. And uh, and on that note, so your backstory, right? So I thought I was just going to have you come on to, you know, talk a little bit about the saltwater tank that you said you had at home. Maybe you've had a couple tanks before that. Um, and then, you know, to really spend the bulk of our conversation talking about Sarah Foods, which, you know, we'll, we'll still definitely talk about Sarah Foods because it's quality stuff. Um, but you had told me, uh, so where did you grow up, Frank? Let's just start with that. So I'm from... Uh, uh Kenya, born and raised. Um, I grew up basically in a fish store. You know, typically we would go to school and uh, get picked up at about four o'clock and we'd all drive uh, to the store. And then when my dad closes the shop, when that's when we go home. So this, uh, my dad's been in the fish business, I would say a little over 60 years now. Uh, he still has chains back home in Kenya. And uh, that's how my interest basically started. And um, uh, start from freshwater to saltwater. Of course, my dad has full line stores, but uh, fish was, uh, I would say, maybe uh, 70% of the business. Wow. Yeah. And so that store in Kenya, to give a shout out to any podcast listeners that are in East Africa, that are in Kenya in particular, uh, your dad, ha- um, the chain of stores that we're talking about is Aquapet. Um, yeah. is, it, is it Aquapet Kenya or just Aquapet in general? Uh, just Aquapet. Okay, just Aquapet. So, you know, that was a gigantic golden nugget of podcast interview awesomeness that I had no idea that you had that backstory. Um, And for those of us that are not geographically, you know, geographic masterminds of East African um, countries, Kenya actually borders Lake Victoria. Correct. And you have some experiences with Lake Victoria. Yeah, we used to uh, pretty much, uh, it was a short drive, I would say about 40, 45 miles to get there. And uh, 
every couple of months we would go there camping and uh, very early in the morning the fishermen would generally bring uh, catch of the day and uh, unfortunately at the time we did not realize how expensive they were but you know we, we would generally have um, uh, haplochromis for, for lunch uh, until today this practice still goes on and there's unidentified species being found pretty much every single day but sometimes you know they do end up uh, coming into the trade and sometimes they just get yeah, eaten up uh, right on the shores there but yeah we did go there pretty frequently yeah, and it's such a, you know, the the first world, you know, perspective on tropical fish and our appreciation for them and where they come from their native habitats. Um, but realizing that for, for locals in these areas, in many cases, you know, these fish that we treasure as, um, you know, aquatic pets, if you will, are a source of, of protein, of good protein for, for locals and for them to pass up on that. Um, is is not really something that they're, they're going to do, nor nor really should they do, um, for the sake of like our interests, right? So like you know they, yeah. they probably are getting down on unidentified species, and maybe you know unfortunately with some other um, external forces that have been put on Lake Victoria and these other rift lakes, you know mm-hmm. the, these species are on the decline. But you've got to put food on the on the table for your family. We had a big problem with uh, uh, Sylvania and uh, water lettuce. Uh, covering up the surface of the lake and making navigation very difficult. Uh, I, I haven't checked lately what the situation was, but uh, it was a huge epidemic and uh, there was a lot of uh, issues with that. I, I don't know uh, if uh, that's been taken care of or not, but I remember maybe 35, 40 years ago, um, this, uh, I remember seeing uh, from a distance the, the growth of the uh, plants on the surface, making navigation very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, as far as timeliness, uh, this episode will be episode 61 with you, Frank. Uh, the previous episode, episode, episode 60, which is not uh, published at this point, but will in a couple days, uh, that was with Greg Steves and I. And Greg is a, um, you know, a member of the CARES organization, um, a, a huge champion for fish conservation, specialized in, it specializes in haplochromines and in Lake Victoria. And, you know, he and I had a conversation at the top of uh, one of our hikes in, in Washington State. It's a real, real cool place to conduct an interview. <clears throat> yeah. But he and I talked a little bit about uh, cares and conservation in Lake Victoria, uh, or the rift lakes in general, and it, and it doesn't sound very optimistic as far as the news that's coming out of these areas. Um, yeah. and, and you know, we actually went so far as to say that when you do talk about it, it, it it's fairly depressing. Uh, yeah. You know, all of these all of these introduced and external forces uh, that are happening on the lake um, or the lakes, I should say, it, it's just not positive news, and it doesn't sound like there's much you know much uh, positivity to report, unfortunately. Sure. Yeah. That's the reality of it. Wow. So then, so it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, we need to book a trip back to Kenya. We could stay with your family. You're a Absolutely. local, and we can totally go out to Lake Victoria. Is that what I'm hearing, Frank? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. So what? Yeah. What are some other stories that you? I feel like you've got to have like a, a couple crazy stories from your, you know, your childhood, um, at Lake Victoria. You know, anything you can you can dredge up on the spot. Um. I mean, there's a whole bunch uh, and all different kind of experiences. Um, at the time, we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have internet access. Uh, I was just fascinated by uh, all the fishermen that would bring some of the fish over to us to the store to sell. And, you know, we struggled, of course, because we didn't have a market for African cichlids, but um, 
you know, I would probably have to really think deep and hard to, to find you something that was worth talking about. But uh, I, I can't think of anything on top of my head right now. Did you ever have fishermen bringing in like, <clears throat> like massive fish that there's no way like anybody's actually going to keep in an aquarium, but they're just thinking like, hey, maybe I can, maybe I can sell this fish store these uh, these fish. Yeah, they used to bring us the African lungfish, which were very difficult, and then the the catfish, uh, the local you know uh, Cynodontis and uh, Nigriventis, which was a very popular fish. Um, and then through these channels, we'd also get fish from West Africa. Uh, but unfortunately, they were very specialized. We didn't know much about them. We didn't know how to care for them. So we'd bring them in, struggle for a little bit, and then eventually it all fizzled away. But uh, from freshwater to saltwater fish, this is how the, the chain was. And of course, they didn't have enough knowledge. Neither did we at the time, you know, how to transport the fish, how to bag them, uh, how to ship them. It was done, uh, you know, we used regular like buses to transport fish from one side of the city to the other. And sometimes, you know, some of these rides were as long as six to ten hours uh, wow. with very rough conditions. But uh, as time went by, you know, we, we improved. And of course, today with technology and uh, the experience of actually bringing fish in from the Far East, uh, we would have fish coming in at really odd hours of the uh, of the night, and uh, I remember remember as as a kid how my dad used to acclimate the fish and uh, all the different techniques that he had, and you know sometimes we struggled for long periods of time trying to find out what the disease was, what the infection was, why the fish are getting stressed. I remember fish coming into Africa from the Far East. Uh, you're looking at very long distances you're looking at almost you know 24 to 36 hours some in some cases even longer so the stress levels are so much higher the conditions are so much worse the infections and diseases that you see there are different from when you're shipping fish within an eight to ten hour window the the, the stress level does not bring uh, the similar diseases uh, that you see here that we had then there and of course not having uh, sourcing of medication. I still remember acriflavin, uh, potassium permanganate, uh, methylene blue, uh, malachite cream, some of which we don't use anymore, but this is what I remember being used at the time. And uh, the experience and that excitement of seeing all this and then the transitioning of you know the survival rate in some batches did extremely well and some didn't. So. Uh, I think today, of course, we've made great progress in terms of, you know, the survival rate. And I, I see just overall uh, uh, much healthier, better quality fish. We brought, we brought in fish from all the way from Israel, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, um, uh, Indonesia, Philippines. And uh, most of it also came from Hong Kong. Oh, nice. Now, would, uh, you know, being in Kenya... Are you are your fish able to take, uh, or were they able to take direct flights, or were they having to stop over in one or two different airports before they'd finally end up in Kenya and in your fish store? They always had uh, at least uh, one, in some cases two stops, and then uh, you have a lot of documentation processes that you know sometimes the the flight lands, and by the time you clear the shipment through the the local authorities and bring it to the facility you're looking at additional maybe five or seven hours at the time so uh yeah it would take quite a bit of time yeah yeah you know on the one hand it's the the fish that would 
succumb to the stress and, and the and, and diseases and the things that would come with you know extended uh, transportation. But at the same time, the survival rate, though, and, and just how hardy these fish and these animals can potentially be, uh, just the hardiness of shrimp in transport. I'm, I'm blown away when I talk to people that do a lot of shrimp shipping and um, just how long shrimp can stay in a bag and the temperature fluctuations that they can um, experience. It, it's pretty incredible how hardy they are. Now, I'm not advocating that we should you know, keep them in transportation as long as possible, um, but it, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think... Uh <clears throat> when you have fish uh, in bags that are uh, being shipped for longer than 20 hours, the the pH drops tremendously. Uh, the ammonia, which already is toxic, but because of the pH being very low, the fish actually cannot detect the level of ammonia. But the moment you open that bag up and the CO2 uh, starts to escape, the pH goes up and that really stresses the fish out. And the, the trick is you know, just identifying what fish can handle it and for how long and just doing it over and over again until you perfect the art. Oh, wow. Yeah, because, you know, to be very clear, you know, as a, as a business owner, there's kind of two driving factors, I would say, to, to this fish survival. One is, you know, this idea of these are living creatures. We want to take care of them. We don't want to see anything perish unnecessarily and in, you know, unsanitary or cruel in a cruel manner. And on, on the other hand, there's the financial aspect, right? Like you've paid for these fish. Um, you know, you want as high a survival rate as possible so you can have healthy fish to sell to your customers. And, you know, through these iterations and your dad's 60 years of experience and all your time in it, like, you, you know, you'll inherently become good and you need to become good because you're a business and you know you also have this driving factor of you know it's sad when fish die like we don't want fish to die like we don't want any animals to die in our care or in transportation to us yeah this is probably one of the most um uh, uh i would say uh, a painful moment uh just maybe seven seven ten years ago uh i lived in in florida and i used to import uh, saltwater fish from uh, Africa and uh, Indonesia and I remember seeing these poor fish sometimes making the whole trip being collected from the ocean sent to the wholesaler wholesaler bags the fish up sends it to me into Miami I pick the fish up bring it to my warehouse I acclimate and sometimes uh, in about 40 minutes you have a few fish that die and it was very depressing because we put in so much effort uh, to make all this happen and for whatever reason which we did not understand at the time and of course as you do it longer you turn you know you you, you get more better experienced at it and 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 then you can have them survive longer but uh, it was very very depressing to see fish dying like that yeah without a doubt um going back to kenya so the the aquarists in kenya you know the freshwater uh, freshwater aquarists what would you say would be a pretty typical setup for a kenyan aquarist um, this has changed over time. Uh, it is uh, now more planted tanks. Um, uh, goldfish, uh, fancy goldfish and koi also are very big. Um, uh, it would be uh, mostly tropical fish. Uh, uh, whenever I talk to my, my parents back home, you know, they talk about uh, the, the, exactly what we're doing here. Uh, I think shrimp is the only thing that has not yet taken off. Uh, it's there in a very small percentage. Uh, it's in certain areas only, 
but uh, mostly uh, planted tanks. Uh, tropical fish is what's the most popular. Mm-hmm. So from from your recollections as a, as a kid, um, you know, and as growing up in the shop, were the tanks with like the uh, the little underwater uh, scuba bubble man and the clam yes. that opens his mouth? Like were those like those yep. decorations and everything? So that, those yep. were all popular as well. They're, they're, they were they used to be popular. Um, uh, up until maybe I would say 10 years ago when that whole transition into more live plants, driftwood. Remember, mm-hmm. you have a lot of access to all different kinds of rock locally available. You know, you just drive uh, uh, about 30, 40 minutes away from the city uh, out in the wild and you can pick any kind of rock you want. You can have any kind of driftwood you want. So it was easy access. And uh, of course, that has taken hold right now. And you have, I, I hear more and more people getting into the planted setups. Mm-hmm. So then even though it's over in East Africa, it, the mirroring of aquarium tastes and styles to, say, the United States, it, it's not that far off then as far as how it's progressed, right? Yeah, it's definitely not. No. Oh, very cool. All right. Now, before we move on to Sarah, Frank, do you have any like crazy zebra or elephant or lion stories or anything <laughs> like that? I feel like you've got to, right? Um, well, where we lived, uh, it, uh, we were just maybe uh, 30 minutes away from the airport. If you left very early in the morning, I would say maybe five in the morning, as soon as you drove off uh, the, the, the house uh, onto the main road uh, that early, you would get to see giraffes, uh, zebras, uh, once in a while um, uh, elephants. And uh, twice we've had a cheetah in our backyard and uh, a couple of uh, baboons that used to hang out in our uh, backyard sometimes. But of course, <laughs> that's at some awesome. Point we had, we've had some issues and uh, uh, had to call the, the local authorities to come and, um, uh, you know, uh, use, um, I don't know what they call it. They actually. Uh, like a tranquilizer or. Like a tranquilizer and okay. then take them back into the wild. But yeah, this was very common. Of course, we we had uh, Jackson's chameleons that were very common uh, there. And, um, you know, Kenya is the only country that has a national park within the city. So you could be around uh, high rise buildings. And as you're driving, drive right into a national park that is protected within the city. And when you drive out on the other side, you're back around uh, high-rise buildings. And this is in Nairobi? This is in Nairobi, which is the capital, yes. And what's the, what's the name of the park? Because I'm on Google Maps right now. Is this the Uhuru Park? or? Uh, no, Uhuru Park is more of a, a regular... Um, Nairobi, Nairobi National Park? Nairobi National Park, yes. Okay, and it's right right east, southeast of the airport. Looks like it's just Correct. right over A104, yes. if, that's, if that's the designation for that freeway. Correct. Wow. And how long did you live in Kenya then? How long did you grow up for in there? Uh, I was there for uh, 30 years. 30 years. Wow. So there. My father is also born there. My mother is born in a small island called Zanzibar, uh, which is on the east coast again of Africa. And uh, I was born there and I moved to the U.S. uh, in 2001. Wow. And so what was what was your perspective? Like, clearly, you are you are an educated, um, an educated person. And, and just the the fact that I had no idea that you, you know, had come, you had this experience living in Kenya. Um, what was, you know, growing up there for 30 years? 
what were some of your impressions like when you came to to the United States? What were things that are so common to us that you found to be just utterly shocking? Like seeing giraffes crossing the street would be pretty shocking to me. What like what was what was something that that really you know kind of threw you off uh, coming to America? Um, actually, I had traveled uh, quite a bit before coming to the U.S. Um, I uh, I think the saltwater aspect of it was always very, very impressive. I, I, I remember in 2001, as I came in uh, and I, I moved to Florida and uh, visiting the local stores there, uh, it was just amazing to see the the depth and level of the saltwater hobby and how intense it was. This is something we didn't have. We generally looked at South Africa being uh, a neighbor uh, to East Africa, and that's where, uh, you know, they were pretty much advanced, and they still are to, to till today very advanced in aquatics and several other fields. But uh, I found the saltwater side of the hobby uh, uh, extremely uh, intense in the U.S. than I think any other part of the world. I, I like your use of the word intense. When I do have conversations with with saltwater folks, and we talk about their setup, and we talk, you know, anything about um, you know corals or, or whatever it may be, uh-huh. it always feels very intense. You know, the, the the expense, the cost, the um, you know the the velvet wipeout, and just everything that comes along with saltwater, it's intense. And when people are like, "Are you ever going to do a saltwater setup?" You know, for yourself, it's it's like no, because it it sounds so intense. You know, having said that, uh, even though the salt water was more interesting, uh, more advanced, I'm always drawn towards fresh water. I, I think there's something very serene about fresh water. Um, I find uh, salt water, yes, it's nice and pretty, it's very colorful, but I think uh, the, the fresh water tanks, the planted tanks, are absolutely breathtaking. I, I still. When I visit stores, I'm always drawn to a freshwater setup with some discus and tropical fish or uh, biotopes uh, of uh, fish coming from specific areas. I'm always naturally drawn to that. And there's something about it that's very calming and relaxing. Um, And and one day when I'm not traveling as much, generally I'm on the road about maybe 25 days a month. So I have five days when I come home. Uh, It's too short a time. to really enjoy a fish tank, um, but eventually, uh, maybe when I have a little more time, I would love to have a few more tanks that I can set up. But back home, and I didn't answer this question when you asked me earlier, I, we, I think uh, I must have had at least maybe 12 tanks uh, just within the house, uh, uh, some just random you know, assortment fish, anything that we found that was interesting and unique would end up in some of those tanks. But um, um, once I moved here, I've had a few tanks here and there uh, in the last maybe 15, 16 years, but uh, nothing that serious. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely do have some some serious street cred and credentials in this hobby. And I'm glad that you brought up that, uh, you know, as a, as a brand rep, what you do for a living, you know, you travel so much and, you know, 25 days a month of travel is is incredible. And you, you are also a family man. You have a home. You've got kids. Um, and so, you know, for me personally, thank you so much for dedicating, you know, up to an hour of, of your time 
on, you know, when you're at home to talk to me and to share your story and, uh, and about Sarah with my audience. So, so thank you for that. Um, but you know, one of the, one of the nice things, I guess, with all the travel though, and kind of what you do is that you, you just get to immerse yourself so much in the hobby. And I've seen you a couple times now at various, uh, trade shows. And so, you know, when you're not manning the booth, which is the majority of the time, you know, you get to walk around and see kind of the setups and, and, you know, so I'm sure you, you've got, you, you've had your opportunity to see some, some pretty sweet, uh, some pretty sweet tanks and pretty cool setups out there i have and i think uh, what i'm really hungry for is uh, uh sharing knowledge and experiences uh, i just still today find it extremely fascinating how stores get into uh, uh the retail side of it and how they started what they did uh and how they solve some of the problems that they they go through on a daily basis and uh, this is limitless. This is something you cannot read online. Uh, and, you know, first-hand experience is pretty much uh, very golden. And uh, till today, I, I always look forward to going to stores and seeing what they've done different and very inspiring also. It's going to be a sad day when I don't get excited to go into a new fish store. Yes. <laughs> like, even, I mean, even, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say this in too negative of a way, but even a Petco and a PetSmart and I and I'm bringing them up because they're typically very cookie cutter. Um, you go into mm-hmm. a PetSmart, Petco, they're they're pretty much going to be set up the same way. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, say what you will about their their care practices. They're, they it's one of the things with social media. If you if you do any like fish social media stuff, it's it's very clickbaity. Like, oh, I'm going to make something about Petco, PetSmart in a very negative light. That's my sure. headline, and then I'm going to get clicks. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know. Going into a pet smarter pet co, even though you have an expectation of what you're going to see and it's probably going to be fulfilled, it's still it's still exciting to go into you know a city that you've never been to before, um, and you go into that pet smarter pet co, you know, and you go and look at their fish. It's it's something that um, you know it's it's going to be real sad when when I'm not like when I pass by um, a fish store that I've never been into, and I'm like, nah, let's just keep driving. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I've I've been to I would say maybe. Um, 35, uh, 36 different states uh, visiting most of the stores in the area. Uh, I still am always excited walking into a store that I've never walked into. You know, I walk in and uh, I think I'm more excited by a sponge filter that I see that I haven't seen before, if if that's something that would ever happen. But uh, I like the old stuff. I like the old type of filters. Uh, I like the old school uh, systems of doing things and uh, most of that I, I think is is it's the person behind it I, I want to know how they they put everything together uh, you know I look at the the smaller details you know presentation yes does matter to a certain extent but uh, more towards the health of the fish and and the and, and the planning and the layout is is probably one of the most exciting things so I'm interested to know have you been to ocean aquarium then in San Francisco Yes, I have. Okay, so so what is your impression of, of uh, Justin's shop in uh, Ocean Aquariums? Um, I think it's 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 in, it's, it's crazy. Place. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I love it's, that store. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, one of those in 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 the top ten. Yeah, it is. Well, because you brought up organization, and there really is no organization in that store. It's it's cha- it, it's chaotic, but it's amazing. It's this, you know, hobbyist gone wild. It's a crazy, crazy store. It's actually, um, this This is, uh, and, and you know, every time I see something like this, I always question why one store has the ability to do well 
And just a few blocks down the road, there's another store that's struggling uh, to do well. And I'm constantly questioning myself, uh, why? You know, how can someone uh, improve their business? What is it that they're doing different? Uh, I find it amazing always when I see more than one owner in a store. Sometimes you have two or three partners and um, how they uh, integrate and make it work. So uh, it's, it's very, very interesting and and i always look forward to to learning more about them yeah i don't want to i don't want to call it the particular name of of if we're talking about ocean aquarium and then maybe one of the other stores in san francisco um mm-hmm. i think one of the things that hopefully is, is is helping out ocean aquarium um is potentially maybe the the low overhead carrying costs of of goods so you walk into that store and all of those plants, you know, I, I assume he's propagating them. Sure, he's probably getting his livestock deliveries once a week, but I, I know he does a lot of breeding as well of those fish. Um, but I, I think aside from the, the fixed cost of utilities and rent, um, I don't think there's much else going on in there that he's having to expend money on. Where I think some of these other stores that I've been into, maybe, maybe we're thinking of the same one that's also in San Francisco, but they have you know, every brand under the sun and every skew for that brand, it seems like it's just, you know, the food choice overload. There's like 30 different choices of algae wafers in 15 different sizes. Like it's, it's an incredible amount of money that you end up sinking into those products. And I know you as a brand rep, like that's not necessarily the conversation we want to have. Um, but I think an inability to down select and really carry some, some choice consumer, uh, dry goods, I think you can just end up, you know, sucking up all of your free cash flow and just have it be in every single dry good possible because you don't want to lose that one fringe sale. This is something uh, we experience all the time. Sometimes you just have too wide a selection. The customer is actually inundated, you know, uh, they have 30 different choices. You're right. And uh, a lot of times it's confusing. You know, if you had to read up on <clears throat> nutrition, on fish food, um, if you go through about 20 different articles, uh, you will not know what to go for. Uh, it's just too complicated. Uh, it has to be simple. It has to be straightforward. And when you're going into a specialty store, it's the owner's job to educate. I have one, two, and three. Uh, this is my best, and this is you know price conscious. And that's all it has to be. But when you give so many choices, it's very difficult to keep up with it. Well, and there's also um, lot like lot expirations, right? That you have to worry about with these with with dry goods, with liquids, with meds. I think for the most part, um, in this in this hobby of what we carry, I think our shortest shelf life product might be 12 months, which is you know 12 months is that that's a pretty decent shelf life. I feel like some foods can push two to three years on their shelf life. But I have been into stores, and I and I challenge people to do this. Like any listener out there, when you go into your local fish store or your big box store that has a massive selection of, of aquatic foods or um, any other food, maybe like turtle foods or reptile foods, whatever it is, go through and pick up like two or three random you know food assortments and look at the expiration date. Because without fail, when I go into a store that has a very large skew selection of foods, I will find one or two foods that are expired. Yes, I, I would say maybe more than half the stores uh, struggle with this. Um, <clears throat> your average uh, shelf life, yes, about 12 months. Um, 
touching on on manufacturing and expiration dates, uh, most foods generally are produced in bulk and then stored in a warehouse. Um, uh, at Sarah, we don't do that. We actually produce food when an order comes in. So when Sarah USA places an order with Sarah Germany, that's when it goes into production. When Sarah Spain orders, it goes into production. So if you look at our uh, facilities online, uh, there's a few videos out there. Um, all the all the products that you see moving within that facility are all spoken for. So nothing sits in a warehouse. Whatever comes into the U.S. has just been made maybe two or three weeks before uh, being delivered to the U.S. So it's very fresh. It's uh, not been sitting in warehouses for long. I would say by the time the product gets here and goes to the store, uh, you're looking at maybe anywhere from two to four months, give or take. Uh, which gives you at least two and a half years of shelf life. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so that's going to be a make-to-order model for, for those manufacturing geeks out there. That's that's make-to-order as opposed to a make-to-stock model. That's, that's how you can have consistency of quality and uh, make sure that you have the longest shelf life possible for the product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, Frank, if you, if you didn't already know, like, feel free to, uh, you can turn this into as much of an infomercial for Sarah as possible. Um, sure. You know, my whole goal with this podcast is to give, you know, there, there's so many voices out there in this hobby, and it's not just all conservation and fish breeders and, and, and you know, specialists of sure. flower horns. It's also for the manufacturers, too, for, for sure. you that represents Sarah to come on and tell Sarah's story. So people that listen to this podcast that may not know about Sarah as a brand, um, you know, it, it, this is this is a way for them to learn more. And the same thing with if I ever get somebody from Hikari or um, New Life Spectrum or, or whoever the brand is, sure. um, I've had Fritz on before. Uh, yep. to, to come on and just talk about your brand, talk about your product and, you know, geek out on fish nerd stuff because, you know, the sure. fish are awesome, but we have to be able to feed them. Sure. And we're, sure. we're not all going to make beef heart, you know, mixes in our in our Cuisinart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so, you know, I've been uh, selling uh, Sarah now, I would say uh, just under 30 years. So my father is also a distributor for Sarah in East Africa. Uh, we import mostly everything. Uh, all our fish food comes from Germany. Uh, we have a lot of stuff that comes from China. Um, and uh, we retail that within the chain of our, uh, within the chains. And then, of course, we wholesale some of it to Tanzania and Uganda. And uh, so my involvement with Sarah has been, you know, going back maybe just under 30 years ago. I remember bring, uh, bringing the product in and selling it in a third world country where you know people were not quality conscious but i still remember today uh, till today um, they would come back some of the customers would come back with the empty containers and you know we would give them other brands of food and they would say no we want only the yellow can and this stuck in my mind you know why is it that you know the customers keep on coming back for this yellow can they didn't know what was in it they were not uh, told to come back for this but for some reason they always were drawn back and they said there's something about this food and this is something I've experienced till today uh, uh, palatability uh, of fish food when you give any fish the Sarah food the chances of them eating it are north of 95% uh, in most cases you give fish uh, new food it takes three or five days for, for them to get adjusted to it. So technically, they would take a couple bites, spit the food out, 
the food settles down uh, the next day you do the same and then on the fifth day they have no choice but to eat it but there was something about the the, the Sarah fish flake that I till today haven't found uh, any other food that can be so easily accepted instantly and this is all the way from fresh water to salt water I've tried this on fish that have never had a flake or a pellet um, and sure enough you try the onip or uh, some of our staple foods and straight away they'll go for it uh, I remember this one video you guys did with um, uh, the archer fish uh, that, with the onip that video that video is awesome that was a phenomenal video um, and and you know when you see things like this, uh, and then of course you go back and, and and test and I've tried and tested all other foods. We're not saying anything is bad. Uh, I actually, even though I work for Sarah technically, I still think that you have to give fish a variety. You should also give them other brands of food because you have different sources of ingredients that are being used, and there's no way you can have only one food exclusively that has everything fish needs so you have to give them a variety uh and other brands as well yeah and that's actually uh i i've had a uh, dr ashley emmanuel so she was at aquatic experience that's where i met her i'm not sure if you you've interacted with her or not but she's north carolina's first certified aquatic vet and she came on to talk about uh fish nutrition and you know her the the gist of the conversation was one we don't know enough about fish uh gut biome and fish you know um uh, nutrition intake as we do dogs and cats from a pet perspective um yes. With that yeah. being said, you know, the work that, that companies like Hikari and Sarah and these other large brands have done on fish nutrition, um, it's good stuff, right? Like, don't necessarily get caught into to buzzwords um, that sure. we may look for in our in our human food supply chain, uh, but also feed a variety, too. And because we don't know that much, it's good to feed a variety to your fish so that they are getting, um, you know, different nutrients and, and, and different... Um, different foods into their diet for their overall health. And, you know, that was something I was already doing, but I really appreciated hearing that. And it, it made me feel good. It's like, oh man, a, a vet said that uh, I should keep doing what I'm doing. And that's a good thing. Yeah. No, this is absolutely true. We, we don't know enough. What we know is just very little. Um, I, I'll tell you about uh, one of our lead scientists that works at Sarah. Um, his name is Dieter Untegasser. Uh, if you go into primary source material for discus diseases, he wrote a few books on, the, uh, on uh, uh, discus health and nutrition. Um, he has uh, 250,000 fingerlings at his house, and all he does is uh, research. So he'll get a batch of food made, <clears throat> sent over to the house, and he'll feed the fish three or four times a day. And then every other day, take the fish out, put it on a scale, weigh, take a blood sample, and see how the ratios of protein to vitamin affects the fish in terms of growth, uh, res disease resistance, uh, including uh, uh, fertility. And then he documents all this, and that's how fish food comes into being, uh, by using those ratios of uh, proteins to vitamins. And... For, he's been doing this for the last maybe 30 years for Sarah, and he's a, one, one of the full-time employees. Wow, that is awesome. Does he have any of his books translated into English, or are they all in German? or? Does, uh, no, that, he, does, he does have. Uh, he also does seminars all over the world in nutrition, uh, including fish disease. Okay, and his name was Dieter? Untigasser. 
Dieter Dieter Untergasser. That that just that name alone makes him sound like a genius. <laughs> yeah, he's a fun guy to talk to. And you uh, sa- and you said he had twenty five thousand or two hundred and fifty thousand fingerlings. Two hundred and fifty thousand fingerlings. This is where he does some of his research. Wow. I think some of the videos that he's done. Uh, or some of the slideshows that he's done uh, uh, also show uh, part, part, part of his uh, setup where he's had all this fish. And uh, he's there generally at every show. Uh, the last, uh, I think last year uh, at Innerzoo in Germany, he was there. And a very technical guy, very knowledgeable, uh, and with a lot of experience. Wow, that sounds incredible. Have you had a, a chance to go see his facility or, or his home, I guess I should say? Not yet. Unfortunately, he lives totally on the other direction from where the facility is. And uh, uh, when we go to Interzoo, that's another five or seven seven hours away. And it's just been not, not had enough time to coordinate. Gotcha. And like this happened. But um, yeah, every time we go for Interzoo, I get a chance to talk to him and... Uh, Sometimes I have to listen very carefully because it's so technical that uh, I actually understand what he talked about uh, two weeks after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to kind of marinate on it a little bit and yeah. let it sink in. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's incredible, though. But, but Sarah has somebody on staff that's been doing fish nutrition research for 30 years. That's incredible. Like, feeds the fish, weighs them, takes blood samples, you know, is constantly testing foods. That's incredible. And he is just one of uh, uh, our uh, guys. Uh, we actually have 11 full-time scientists. All they do is research on product. Wow. Uh, from medication. Unfortunately, we don't have the medications coming into the USA yet. Uh, but uh, all they do is just research on product, uh, you know, how, uh, palatability, sustainability, digestibility, what it does to the water chemistry, long-term, short-term effects, um, and, and this goes, of course, into the formulations. Uh, we don't use any soy products in any of our fish foods, as we uh, now know that uh, uh, soy actually contains uh, a higher estrogen level, which will make fish infertile. So you will never, never see any kind of soy being used in any, or, any of our fish foods. Um, we do not use any kind of protein derived from land animals, uh, from what we have researched over the years, we feel that fish have not evolved to digest proteins that come from land animals. So whatever you'll see in protein ratios in, in all of our food um, formulations is all from aquatic strains. So you'll see things like mussel, um, uh, krill, shrimp, gamorous. Uh, these are some of the ingredients that we've always used. And uh, I would say maybe 90% of everything you see in our ingredient listing is what we've used 40 years ago. So we've added a few things, uh, but we've not really taken anything away. And we've seen maximum digestibility, whereby fish can actually consume the food and digest it by up to 85%, uh, which technically means cleaner uh, water. uh, And uh, fish actually being able to transfer this nutrition into body weight without causing any long-term effects, such as... uh, uh, stunted growth uh, and uh, also long strands of fish waste. This actually tells you that the fish are not able to digest the food, and hence they're having this uh, issue. So this is something you'll never see with Sarah. I personally have never come across 
uh, any fish that struggles with uh, digestion when fed, uh, uh, you know, the seraphish food. So, so a couple things there. Um, I definitely want to talk about the the fecal matter. Would that be the the, the waste, uh, the length of the waste? But um, Dr. Ashley Emanuel also, you know, that was one of the things we talked about was land animal proteins and how that, you know, the research is showing that, you know, that's something that we should not be feeding to our fish. That they don't, they're they're not able to properly process uh, process that. And it's so funny that. You know, the the beef heart is such can, can be such a staple in something that people include in their like Oscar cichlid or, you know, larger cichlid diet um, is this land animal protein. Um, and, and to hear her say that right again, she's done a tremendous amount of research as sure. a certified aquatic vet. And now to hear that Sarah and all of the scientists that you have and the research that you guys have done, it's also saying, hey, uh, probably research is saying that we probably shouldn't be using land animal protein. And I know that that's going to be something that as people listen to this and maybe they're they're currently feeding like a beef heart food to their fish, that's where their personal experiences, they're probably going to butt up against that state, those statements um, sure. and maybe push back a little bit and kind of flame me a little bit. But, you know, when you've got, when you have this kind of uh, evidence and research coming out, um, it's not that difficult to switch from, right? Like it, we're not pigeonholed into only using beef heart food. Like there's so many other foods out there that are going to be um, insect-based proteins or aquatic uh, protein sources like this, it's almost like the sky's the limit for the number of choices that you have out there that don't contain a land animal. So, um, you know, if, if you haven't already done that, like I would personally just, you know, consider switching, take what Frank is saying, the research that Sarah's done, what uh, past guest, Dr. Ashley Emanuel, what she says, and, you know, maybe consider switching your fish off of a, a land animal protein. So I'll give you, uh, another, um, uh, example of, uh, nutrition. Um, I would say maybe about two years ago, I bumped into uh, some uh, article done by a lady in uh, uh, Gainesville, Florida, and she was doing uh, research and she uh, actually took African cichlids and had a local fish food company prepare uh, foods with different percentages of protein. And uh, I think most of these were all uh, haplochromis. And uh, she fed them for, I would say, maybe six months, and she documented everything. And from the start to the finish, her uh, conclusion was that African cichlids, uh, if they have a protein less than 35% and higher than 42%, they will not be able to digest the food. And sure enough, when I... I, I go into our fish food label on African cichlids. We have a product called Granu Green. The protein ratio was 36.9%. It was very, very specific. And uh, this was 35 years ago, but the research that I read was just a couple years ago. So when these two things match, it tells me something. And um, of course, you know, African cichlids, uh, there's tons of food. Of course, they'll eat pretty much anything. Fish will eat anything. You know, you, you just give them enough time and they will eat anything. Um, going back to the protein used from land animals, oxart was used by, I still remember my father preparing this many, many years ago and feeding it. And it took a while for him to realize and understand, yes, you can use all these things, but it also means you're going to be doing a water change every other day. Uh, you know, and of course, as a hobbyist, you want something that's cleaner and more sustainable. 
Um, we don't know what hormones are being used. We don't know what is being sprayed uh, on the grass that these animals are consuming. So how cleaner of an ingredient can we use to make the fish food more sustainable and accessible? So you mentioned earlier about uh, using uh, insect protein. This is one of the newer researches uh, where we're finding that the protein derived from uh, 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 black soldier fly is more uh, digestible and cleaner in, 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 in the environment. And of course, the, uh, the emissions from shipping a fish meal from one end to the other, these are all things that you know, we want to consider. So uh, not only do we have a, a, a good sourcing for products that are very digestible and very clean, but we also want to be sustainable. And, and this is something, if you go on our website, you'll see we have our own, uh, we produce our own electricity to run our whole facility. And whatever surplus we have, we supply to uh, just under 500 homes uh, within the area of where the Sarah headquarters are. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I would say black soldier fly, uh, the black soldier fly larva, that protein source. I mean, we're probably going to be eating black soldier fly burgers in the next 20 years. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just it, all the research just shows that it's such an incredible source of protein, its ability to convert um, essentially waste into into digestible, good, healthy proteins is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it, on the note of the length of the excrement, like the, the poo, right, coming from the yes. fish. Um, yes. So, so by naked eye observation, is it something where you should never really see any trail regardless of length whatsoever? Or is it like, oh, no, you'll see like up to a millimeter or two, and then your fish will essentially pass that? Like, what is what is kind of the direction to a home hobbyist of what they should be looking for? You should not have a long trail. What would you define whatsoever. as a long trail? Um, anywhere from uh, two or three inches is a very long trail. Generally, uh, it should break off that's a super long trail. <laughs> yeah, it should break off uh, uh, instantly without it dangling. Mm. Fish, it should not be there. When you look at a fish, it should not have any excrement on on the body. You know, mm-hmm. it should literally break off instantly. Okay, gotcha. Good to know. And then, lastly, I would say so to kind of share my you know three favorite Sarah foods. Um, and I've actually, I'm cheating because I have your Sarah catalog. Well, I've had your Sarah catalog okay. for quite some time, but, um, in my fish room right now, the foods that I feed, uh, Vipin nature flake. I love that flake food. Um, I feed the GVG mix. Uh, I love that. And also O-nips. And, uh, so those are, those are three staples. Now I also feed Vibrobites. I feed, I've got some cobalt flake. I've got, uh, you know, uh, fluval bug bite. So I've got a variety of foods in my fish room. I've even got some that, um, I got from past guest, Sarah Bills. She has, uh, it's, it's like discus food made in Germany. So it's like a real niche kind of brand. Uh, but I also have their food. I've got, I've, I've got a ton of foods in my fish room, but three absolute staples in there are those three GVG mix, uh, O-nip tabs and Vipin Nature. And these are, this is the key is to have this selection. Keep on alternating, you know, use different brands. Like I said earlier, uh, it's always healthier and better for the fish because every company uses a different source of protein. Again, when we look at protein, this is a wide subject. Generally, uh, the average hobbyist would look at the percentage of protein and then judge the food based on that. Uh, I think, in my opinion, the right question to ask is, what is the source of this protein? Where does this protein originate from? You know, if you have protein that's derived from soy, if it's coming in from uh, 
a fish digest or if it's coming in from uh, land animals, uh, it could be a very high percentage of protein. But uh, as we now understand in no fish uh, nutrition, uh, that they're not able to digest it. Mm-hmm. So source is extremely critical to, to ask yeah. uh, rather than the percentage of protein. Yeah. So I'm also going to kind of put you on the spot a little bit. And, and sure. it's not too much on the spot because I've, I've actually asked you this before as, as like legitimately like as this question for if customers ask us, uh, Vipin, what, is, what does the Vipin mean in, in the Vipin line? It's just a, 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 a fantasy name. <laughs> so it's just a it's just a made up name to make it sound cool. Yeah. It's a little product branding, so no worries there. The, uh, the only thing that uh, I know of, uh, which is an abbreviation for uh, freeze vacuum dried, is GVG. Yeah, and that was the next question. Yeah, so so GVG. Yeah, sand uh, flora, of course, just means green. I know some of the names are technical. Um, uh, yeah, they're just made up names uh and really have no meaning by the way uh, when we talk about freeze right i don't know if i'd ever mentioned this to you before but uh, if you go back into the history of how sarah started uh the owner mr ravnik actually started this company by uh collecting mosquito larvae from the local uh rivers and lakes in germany and then taking it to fish stores to sell and as this process went on, he did well. And then he figured maybe there should be a way of of, of freeze-drying these animals. And of course, when you go back 50 years, uh, the technology was not there. But this whole process of freeze-drying fish food was originally developed and started by Mr. Ravnik. So anytime you're seeing a freeze-dried product, this was originally created by Mr. Ravnik. Wow, that's a cool fun fact. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, so on the note of mosquito larvae, I recently, about a month ago, I would say, I harvested mosquito larvae uh, from the side of my house because like any good um, fish room multiple tank syndrome aquarist, you probably have some some busted tanks on the side of your house that are still good sure. enough to accumulate rainwater. Yep. Um, yep. And so I had, I let them sit there for so long and I went one day and I checked and they were just filled with mosquito larvae. So my wife doesn't know that and she doesn't listen to this podcast. So she has no idea that I was just letting mosquitoes uh, breed like crazy on the side of our house. But I harvested, I harvested so much of that mosquito larvae and I put them in with angelfish, with guppies. They went bonkers for those mosquito larvae. It was incredible. Now, this is one, probably one of the best foods you can use this. And um, um, what is it called? Um, we use this ingredient. It's it's probably one of the m- most uh, common used uh, live foods uh, in Asia. Actually, most of the fish that come from Asia are fed exclusively on um, mosquito yeah. larvae, or it's um, uh, it grows in green water. Oh, Daphnia. Daphnia. Mm-hmm. Daphnia. This is one of the most widely used fish foods and uh, it contains such a high amount of roughage and fiber that it <coughs> constantly purges the uh, the belly of the fish and this in turn makes it very easy for the fish to absorb nutrition and transfer it into body weight oh wow so, uh, feeding uh, daphnia is very very beneficial yeah if a fish farm is doing it you know, that's that, that's a pretty good indicator of, you know, kind of the path that you should be going down as a home aquarist. Like if if a fish if a fish farm is doing it, you know, there, there may be something there. Sure. Yeah. 
All right, Franklin, with that being said, we are approaching the one hour mark. And, uh, you know, like, like we've said earlier, 25 days on the road, you've only got five days at home with your family. So I don't want to take up any more of that precious, precious time. Um, this has been a phenomenal interview, phenomenal conversation with you. And um, I think you'll be up in our area, what, in the next week or so? Um, yeah, I'm actually leaving for Virginia tomorrow and then I'm just there for a couple of days and then I should be coming into Seattle. All right, yeah. well, well, let's do lunch. That'll be great. I'll let you know as soon as I, uh, I land uh, Seattle. Sounds good, Frank. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invite.